The impact the media has on our society cannot be understated. And in an ideal world, balanced and nuanced representation of adoption would be portrayed in both fiction and non-fictional realms, but unfortunately, this is rarely the case. By now, you've probably heard about the fallout of The Blind Side, that 2009 movie about Michael Orr, a homeless black boy who was rescued by a white Christian couple who take credit for turning him into an all-American football player and a first-round NFL draft pick. I'm actually hesitant to even say that the film is about Michael Orr because we rarely hear from his character directly throughout the film. Instead, we hear other people talk about him and his character. He wrote a book in 2012 called I Beat the Odds, From Homelessness to the Blind Side and Beyond. And in that book, he wrote, quote, I felt like it, being the movie, portrayed me as dumb instead of as a kid who had never had consistent academic instruction and ended up thriving once he got it. End quote. In any case, this episode today is not about the blind side. It's about media literacy and how one show surprised me with their awareness, their sensitivity, and their respect for adoptees and our stories. This show was one that aired on TLC and is now owned by Warner Brothers. The show is called Long Lost Family. As part of my book tour, I traveled to Tennessee, and while there, I took that opportunity to meet a woman that I'd previously only known online, Patrice Martin. And Patrice had intrigued me because she is a Black adoptee and has Black adoptive parents. And this same race configuration of adoption is something that I'm continuously interested in and researching. But it actually wasn't that part of our conversation that intrigued me. It was what she shared about her experience on this show, Long Lost Family. In season six, episode eight of the show, Patrice's story is represented. And in the episode, you learn that she was discovered by a stranger after they heard an infant crying from inside of a trash bin outside of a mall. This was Patrice, and Patrice was adopted shortly thereafter. At the age of 42, she reached out to Long Lost Family and ultimately was cast on the show where they introduced her to her biological sister and her biological mother, that woman who put her in a trash can. I encourage you to go find this episode and watch her story. Because of the common portrayals of adoptees in the media, it'd be natural for you to watch it and to think, that's terrible. How could her birth mom do that? And to expect to find out. Instead, even though Long Lost Family did find Patrice's birth mother, they made the choice not to feature her in the episode. They decided not to sensationalize this aspect of Patrice's story. And this is why I'm thrilled. It is unusual to see a large media production veer away from the seemingly irresistible trap of using her birth mother's choice as a catalyst for drama or ratings. And having been involved in many public-facing media opportunities that have exploited my story, I wanted to know who was making these decisions. 
And how did they do this with such respect? I wanted to know what network cared so much for adoptees over ratings. I'm Angela Tucker, and this is The Adoptee Next Door, a podcast where I interview adoptees about living the adopted life. Every day, we would start our morning off by uh, talking about whatever we were shooting at that day. We would talk about all the possible options and scenarios, knowing that any moment it could go in any kind of direction, and we had to be ready for that. But the most important thing was to make our seeker, which is what we would call someone like Patrice, feel safe. And if that meant coming out from behind the camera or to put a camera down, which is never hurt. I mean, you just don't do that in television, to put a camera down, never. But if the situation warranted that kind of thing, to be okay with putting a camera down, to be okay with an operator to walk away from their camera, for a sound mixer to hold somebody's hand while they're putting a mic on them, That takes extraordinary people. That was Catherine Takis, one of the executive producers of Long Lost Family. I had the awesome opportunity to interview her and Patrice in a live event hosted by The Cradle. The Cradle is an adoption agency that invited me to Chicago to host this live podcast as part of their celebration of their centennial. They rented a historic building that was a bank back in the 1900s and is now used as a unique event space that can seat a few hundred people. In addition to speaking with Patrice and Catherine, I also interviewed, after the live event, a few other people who were integral parts of this production, including the show's host, the show's therapist, and the head of research at Ancestry.com. I am so excited for you to meet these special guests. Join me as we go live to the northwest side of Chicago on an unseasonably warm November day. And I want to give just a quick disclaimer that there is a brief mention of sexual abuse at 22 minutes. So please skip that part if that is sensitive for you. There is a lot of temptation for media, for TV, for movies, for comedy, to utilize the most sensationalized parts of our story to kind of exploit us and our feelings. And the long-lost family didn't do that. And I was very impressed. I've had experiences going on different TV shows and being interviewed by other folks. And it can feel almost like you're, um, you're just being used and someone's kind of eating popcorn and listening to your tragic story. Right. And that just does not feel good. We think about movies, you know, think about Annie where there's this cruel headmaster and then she's saved into this life of riches very inaccurate storytelling. Or we think about birth mother portrayals, which is usually drug addicted and again, really limited, not the full humanity or the full scope of adoption. And I think for so many of us, 
who are not adopted, their first experience with adoption is through the media. And so I find it to be quite irresponsible when media outlets choose to simplify our story, to reduce our story to just a dramatic storyline. So I thought, what better thing to do than to talk to the folks who produced this episode about how they resisted that urge and perhaps that could be a model for more shows moving forward. So with that said, I'd love to invite up to the stage Patrice and Catherine. It's a thrill to be here with both of you. Patrice, thank you for sharing your story in this way. To jump in, I'm curious, what made you apply for TLC? What was that process like and why did you choose to do it? My real motive at the time was because I could not sleep. I was up one night flipping through the channels and saw about 2.30, 3 o'clock, this show. And I saw where there were some folks being reunited with their families. And I was like, people really do this? This is on TV? And I couldn't get it out of my head. I said, wow. And as an adoptee, I really did not feel as if anybody's story I saw on there was exploited. It just made me more curious. I thought, well, if anybody's going to be able to help me, this show will. Because I had just put it in the back of my mind that I'll just never be able to find anybody. Because at the time, even I wasn't, it wasn't like how people were giving ancestry DNA kits out for your Christmas present or whatever. It just wasn't like that. I put it out there. And some months later, I received a call. Catherine, tell about your role at Long Lost Family and what happens when someone like Patrice submits a casting. I am the executive producer or one of the executive producers on Long Lost Family. And so what my role was, was to oversee the entire production. I was also the producer and I directed more than half the episode. So I was also out in the field directing. So when someone submits an application to us, the first year we had 2,000 people. The second year we had 20,000 people. So our offices had stacks of paper, just like Patrice's application. And I will assure you that we went through each one. We went through 20,000. Okay, so then you're thinking like, okay, then how do you whittle it down? Well, you look at the circumstances, you look at the states, because back then when we started the production, most of the states had closed adoptions. So there was no way in the world we were ever going to ever find anything. So you go through a process of that, and then we have a group of people that some people would call casting people, but they're so not casting people. Yeah, I've loved, as we've talked, the way you framed it is, I think the word casting is a misnomer. Truly is a misnomer because in shows either scripted or unscripted, they have a casting director, you know, the cast people. Well, 
for lack of a better name, we called them our casting department, but they were researchers. They knew how to uh, look in places that most of us had no idea where to look. And they were therapists because once a story was determined to be, let's say, a possible story, then the process of calling people on the phone, like Patrice, and spending a lot of time on the phone with them, getting to know them, getting to understand the reason behind it all, and also being able to create a safe space, which is something that always was important to us from the very, very beginning. We never had the urge to make this something other than to tell a really great story in a meaningful way and to help people. I mean, that was our mission from day one. Never once, and I, this is honestly from my heart, did we ever think, oh, you know, this is a perfect way to, you know, sensationalize something and boost ratings. That never even occurred to us. And that was a through line all the way down to the selection of our crew, which was all handpicked, so that uh, we understood this was something very traumatic for people. And we wanted to go on this voyage with them and handhold with them and, and make it safe for them to be able to do that. Every one of the stories that we did still stays with every single member of our crew. We, it was an honor, truly an honor for us to have Patrice and the other people invite us to go on this journey with them. And I'm still in contact with quite a few people. And there are friends, and they consider us their family, which is a huge honor, truly a huge honor. One of the aspects of the show that I think is really important is that the host is an adoptee, Lisa Joyner and Chris Jacobs, but Lisa joined you for your episode. And I'm curious if you can articulate what impact it was that you were going through this on camera with an adoptee. She's a professional. She's a journalist. If you go and you look, you know, you've probably seen her when you see her face, you'll say, oh yeah, I've seen her interview. She's interviewed on the red carpet, you know, celebrities about movies they've done. She's a professional interviewer. So she could have just come in there and known how to get information out of anybody. But the way you see her asking those questions and her knowing that I'm introducing this person to their sister for the first time. And I, and she knows what that feels like and told me herself. That went far. And you know you're not alone you know they get it. My name is Lisa Joyner. I hosted the show Long Lost Family for six seasons on TLC. It was a passion that I had ever since I, as an adoptee, went in search of my biological family. And when I did it, I realized that there were so many stories out there like mine that needed to be told. There was also a personal part of this. I saw a misrepresentation of people in the adoption triad. As an adoptive parent, if you say you adopted a child, people would say, oh, you're so sweet and that's so nice of you to do that. And if you were the biological mother who placed their child for adoption, it's like, how could you do that? And I, I really had a problem with 
the way there was a perception of, of birth parents as well. So I really decided to get into this and, and really sort of push this forward and try to, 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 to get these stories out there because of that personal experience. And I wanted to find a way to elevate the people in the entire adoption triad. So it's a very personal thing. I think it's important for us to change the way people look at adoption and the way they look at people who place children for adoption. So your personal beliefs around adoption storytelling matched and aligned with the, the power that you were given, not just to host, but to be able to kind of storyboard. It was a labor of love from the beginning. I had been trying to get a show like this on the air for uh, a decade before because I had gone through my own personal experience of finding my biological family. And once I did that, I realized, my God, these people, there's so many stories there. It's fascinating. Every story, even though it's, it, it feels like it starts from the same place, it does not end in the same place. And, and I felt like there was so much to tell and that these people that I was meeting along the way, they needed to be heard, you know, as human beings, that will, that's what we really want. So, I mean, we, you know that you have to build up tension. You have to, and that comes in the edit, but that doesn't come at the expense of the, of the person. You can bring in music, you can cut it a certain way, but nobody was ever misrepresented. People said, people said to me, that can't be, is that really real? And I'm like, it's real. Like it's happening and there's no do-overs. It's not like we're going to do the reunion and it didn't go well. So we're going to do this again, that all, everything that you saw was real and you had to get it right the first time. And we had to set it up so that cameras were rolling. They couldn't miss anything. The sound had to be right because we can't do it again. Could you try to articulate what a difference might be had the show not been hosted by two adoptees? You know, there's no better people than Chris and I, honestly, without sounding like we have ego, to do these stories because we've sat in their chair, you know, and sitting across from somebody and holding their hand and guiding them through this journey and uh, having the privilege of doing that is a responsibility that I take very seriously. And, and I think the network took it seriously too. And, and I think it shows in the product. There's always a period of time where you're sitting with that person and I kind of felt like I had to counsel them. I imagine just even like an eye glance, like looking over at you, if I were the adoptee subject, looking over, just looking into your eyes, knowing you know this moment, not the unspoken. Oh, yes. Been down that road before. And I think that's something that nobody else can do if they haven't been through it. You know, I mean, you can get notes or something, but it, it, it you know, it's not going to work. It's not, it's not going to feel the same. It was definitely more than a show. I've been in television for a long time and I have never done anything that was more meaningful, that was more important than Long Lost Family. I have been on many shows and I'm thinking of one in particular where I was speaking to a producer for a year perhaps, and it felt very much like they cared about my story. And when I showed up to their set, they had me, I hadn't seen my birth mother for a little while. 
And so they had my birth mother come in and they wanted me to go hug her. And we don't really hug, you know, I've met my birth mother about a decade ago and it's complicated, but they said, you know, you, you hug, walk across the room quickly. And so my birth mother and I kind of walked slow and timid, leaned in for a hug. And they said, no, not good enough. Go back to the place, come back, hug. And so we did that and it still wasn't good enough. And so they said, okay, hug means Angela, you put your, your chin on this side of her shoulder and Deborah and just orchestrating this. And it was just almost traumatic. And so that experience along with some others has helped me to realize some of these shows are quasi real, but this show is real decided not to do that. So to juxtapose that I meet my sister on the show. Ultimately imagine yourselves sitting in a room and there's a cameraman in the corner and I'm sitting here as I am and we're waiting for my sister, let's say, for her to come down these steps and me to meet her for the first time. And he's just unassumingly off to the corner. Whatever happens, happens. Forgot he was even there. And to document what happened and let it unfold. And for probably about an hour, hour and a half, it may have been, just sat there and let me meet my sister. That makes me think about your work. These are your crew, cameramen. And so they must have had some training around this. And you said you handpicked your crew. Tell me more and what type of things were not okay. We knew that the subject matter was going to be traumatic. And in some cases, we were dealing with really intense stories, like stories of rape. And so you can't just ask anybody to be part of a crew when you're going to tell that kind of story. And I've been in television and film for a long time, 25 plus years, Every day when we were on the road, we would start our morning off by uh, talking about whatever we were shooting at that day. We would talk about all the possible options and scenarios, knowing that any moment it could go in any kind of direction, and we had to be ready for that. But the most important thing was to make our seeker, which is what we would call someone like Patrice, feel safe. And if that meant coming out from behind the camera or to put a camera down, which is never hurt. I mean, you just don't do that in television, to put a camera down, never. But if the situation warranted that kind of thing, to be okay with putting a camera down, to be okay with an operator to walk away from their camera, for a sound mixer to hold somebody's hand while they're putting a mic on them. That takes extraordinary people. Every time I would, you know, morning or afternoon, we would start shooting. There was one uh, particular sound guy, and I didn't really know his name at the, at the time, but 
he would look me in my face. He would mic me up and he'd say, how are you doing today? You got this. And just saw me and knew in some ways that maybe some of the questions I was even being asked or dealt with that day, um, some of the content that I was dealing with that day was going to be heavy. And maybe it was later that day. I think I realized after the fact that that's why he was doing that. But that is just for the sound man who was putting the mic on me, you know, take the mic to your back to say, you got this. You're doing okay today. That was huge. You had a sense, Catherine, that Anybody who was touching any aspect of this production, which is a human being's life, mattered. That they weren't just just a camera person. It makes me think about my work with Jagged Little Pill in, on Broadway. When I was working with the lead actor, who is a transracial adoptee, and I was working with her really closely, teaching this actor who is not a transracial adoptee about the experience. But then Diablo Cody, who she's a screenwriter, she wrote Juno, if you know that movie. She said, Angela, we want to bring you to New York to, and Diane Paulus is the director. So Diane and Diablo said, we want to bring you to New York to not just work with our lead actor, but the whole cast. And so... The ensemble, who's, you know, the dancers who don't have lines sometimes, even they were learning about transracial adoption because they said, we're going to be able to do our part better if we know all of the ins and outs too. Money is a real element in media, in film. Time ticking is money lost. And so I would think that there was pressure on you to speed things up, to make people like Patrice have less emotions. Did you feel that pressure and how, how did you push against it? I've been doing this a long time and I was a line producer for a long time. So that means someone that's in charge of the money. So yes, on the one hand, every day I would have this ticking clock in my head and I would be looking at my watch and there would often be times where we were waiting for somebody, but I can tell you that somehow something happened and we were able to make our days and we never ran over budget. And if I needed a little bit more time, I would signal across to our camera camera operators like, can I have five more minutes or 10 more minutes? And always they would say yes. So again, that's choosing the right crew because they knew there's no way someone's going to walk on set and say, it's time for lunch in the middle of somebody crying. It's just not going to happen. I know from searching for my birth family, I thought I wanted to find my birth parents. That was it. And instead, I found them thrilling, and I also found a new community. My relationship with my adoptive mother has grown 
through that experience, the support, my adoptive dad as well. I've gained friends like you. And it seems like Catherine, this quality that she has, has now become part of your community. I see the way that you two reconnected tonight and you really picked up. Do you need the Kleenex? I don't. Are you? <laughs> How does it feel to see each other? I was just sharing with her parts of the story that even after we stopped filming, part of what you don't see on there is that my uh, birth mother, she was, she was very ill at the time. So the day that we stopped filming, they so graciously even rolled that information out to me that, you know, we couldn't ha actually have your birth mother on the show because she's in, you know, a medical facility. I had a little bit of strength left. If you can think of how tired I would be after that day and all the emotions of that. And I was telling Catherine, I had a little bit of strength left. And I said, but I can't leave this city without seeing her. Catherine, do you remember how that was stated? We didn't want to tell her that her mother was dying because that's also not our place to say that. But we urged her in a very gentle way. I think it would be a good idea if you saw your mother. As we all know, we're in this room because we support adoptees. We love adoptees. We center adoptee stories. It also gives me the chance to say, okay, this is the information that I needed as an adoptee to make the choice to take action to meet this person if I wanted to. Do you see the, you see the difference in that? How empowering that was to me. And we did that and I have supportive family and, and wonderful. And we all went and I was able you know, to meet her and that was, you know, have some private conversations with her. And I just told Catherine that and showed her some pictures and she was just blown away. And she was able to see, right, these ripple effects of how you handled this story allowed me to make the choices that I needed to make that day. You consulted with an adoption competent therapist in on the show, both for the benefit of the seeker and for your show as well. And can you tell us about that? We knew from the very beginning that we were going to need help in maneuvering this world. And we sought out help from a very well-renowned therapist in, in the adoption world, correct? Leslie McKenna. And Leslie was our therapist, as well as the therapist for the seeker and also other people on the show. I can't imagine doing this show without Leslie. I mean, she helped us tremendously. And I think Patrice can probably speak to that a little bit more. Now, they're being a little, um, when I say bashful here, this is one of the therapists in the adoptee world. Like, I didn't realize who I was talking to on the phone <laughs> at the time. And I was like, oh my gosh. Um, later on, as I got to do this work, 
I worked with her. I am a birth mother when it comes to the adoption community. I had been a therapist for 20 some odd years when the two sons that I relinquished for adoption found me and set my world upside down in a very good way, but upside down nonetheless. And I did a deep dive into learning everything I could about adoption because I was going on the narrative that most of the public was going on, that I did the very best thing, the right thing, and you know that this was going to give them the best life ever. Not, but nonetheless, I learned a lot, took me about seven years, and then I began to specialize in the adoption constellation. So by doing that, I became more open with my own story, which was extremely traumatic. It's in the book, The Girls Who Went Away. And one of the things I found was the more that I spoke, the better healed I became. Because telling our stories is part of our healing, along with reunion, part of our healing, but it's a very long journey. Is this what led you to accept the consulting gig with Long Lost Family? Long Lost Family contacted me because I ran a big search and support group in Atlanta, Georgia for years, 25 years, and they were looking for participants who wanted to be reconnected. And so I just grabbed Tess, the gal who contacted me and said, hey, what are you going to do for these people? Because you know, and I started in on my education with Tess about this is one of the biggest events that can happen in anybody's life. And what you're going to be doing is uncovering trauma that they don't know they have. And you don't, you can't go in with a camera and take a picture and then leave them standing there. Did you have any reservations about adoption being on a television show like this? I had huge reservations. I worried what my peers in adoption land would say about me, like sell out, you know, you're going to go be on one of those reunion porn shows. And so I did do a lot of research and I asked them questions about, which is the thing that I really want people to hear. If you get an opportunity like this, don't just say, okay, thank you very much. Yes, I'll be glad to do it. Do your homework. They were so open. They answered all my questions. I said, what's the slant? What are you going for? They offered me to look at previous segments, and that just felt right. And I came up with a proposal of how I would meet with each one of the participants right after, try to do some assessment on how they were doing uh, emotionally. I would call them again a few weeks later and do a second assessment of how they were doing. And then I would flood them with all the resources in the world. And you, Angela, were one of my resources, my many resources, especially when they were talking with younger kids and family members and, you know, the interracial adoptions and so forth. I would always, you were on my list, but I would line them up so that they would have a support group in their area if humanly possible. And if not one online, and I would just get all that to them. What do you remember about working with Patrice that you can share? That was the first time I'd ever heard a story like Patrice's where she was abandoned in a mall. And I have heard 
many of those stories. And I feel so deeply because I now understand therapeutically what abandonment, even in the best of circumstances, when it was a mother just signing papers in a maternity home, it is still a horrific abandonment. And then to have those kind of details, but nothing else to go on, she just grabbed my heart. But she also seemed like a level-headed woman. She had a sense of humor that's guided me a long ways. (laughs) And I knew she was somebody that was going to pick up and use the resources. I could hear that from her already. I'm so excited to hear she's become part of our community, our activism, because that's the people we need. If you get this opportunity, craft and clarify the message you want to get out, not the message they want to get out. And that's your job. You've got to do that and don't go to sleep at the wheel. I did it with you for today. I said, there are a couple of things I want to tell people who are trying to get their foot in the media, and that's know what you want to talk about, check out what their story's going to be about, and remember that you're not speaking for yourself alone. You're speaking for our community. Do us justice. We don't get the mic very often. Do us justice. I think that's a great segue into sharing what you're doing, advocacy-wise. Three pillars that I've kind of picked up. One pillar is the media. And any time I could partner with Angela or Catherine or making sure my voice gets out, making sure that that's real. The second advocacy pillar is in the faith community. I myself, I'm a Christian. And in the faith community, I will be the first to say that there's just some things that we've gotten wrong. There's some things that I think that we could do better and some ways that we can get this right. So I founded the Adoptee MPE Prayer Collective. It's a grassroots movement. We just meet once a month. Um, I do some spiritual direction there and just hold space um, for adoptees to come and pray, meditate together on how this thing is playing out through their whole life story. And then the third one is um, getting a little bit more active in understanding about legislation. Yeah, I'm one of those fierce advocates for our records. We have rights. We have right to know a lot of stuff that we've been kept in the dark. And I just want people to be able to have what they have and to know about themselves so they can make choices about their lives accordingly. I've had the privilege of working with the writers on the show, This Is Us from NBC. And that was a great opportunity to do what you have talked about, be a consultant to help them get the adoptee experience right with all the nuance that comes from it. But it just, it's one reason I wanted to do this episode to hopefully set forth a new model where media puts in their line item a budget line of consulting with adoptees to get it right, to consult with an adoptee competent therapist to get it right, that I'd love to see that moving forward. I think it's depending on who's running the show. I mean, honestly, who is the showrunner? Do they care? 
because that's what it really comes down to. Who's running the show? Do they really care? Are they going to make the effort? Are they going to fight for that extra line item or two? I think it would be great to go back a little bit to, to Patrice's story. So when she submitted the application was chosen, a DNA test was sent, and she did the DNA, spat in the tube, sent it back, and what happened then? The folks at Ancestry were our partners from the very beginning, and this is when Ancestry really was just first starting out. And so um, they were on the case, and again, besides Leslie, we couldn't have done the show without Ancestry either because they did a lot of the, the legwork for us, and so... They would get a story and they would just jump on it and they just, they started to look and started to look and started to look and that took time and time and time. And then when, when they, when we would reach out to people, Ancestry would call and say, I think we have a match and these are the people. And so then our, um, casting department would get on it and they would call. Oftentimes people, oftentimes people would hang up on them immediately. Several phone calls later, they would continue to hang up on them. Because you have to imagine now, they've been living their life for 30, 40, 50, 60 years in a certain way. Someone is on the other end of the phone saying, um, there's somebody looking for you, click. (laughs) So it took, it took time, months, really in some cases, years before people would feel, I'm going to say brave enough, because that's really what it is, to come forward and say, okay, and give us five minutes, ten minutes to talk, that first conversation, to just talk with them, to share information with them. Which I can imagine is the same process for the 20,000 applications that you received that many of those folks it's a it's a big step to apply but if they got a call back are they really ready for this process those are two very separate things absolutely and sometimes they would tell us no and then six months later they would call us back and say okay I'm ready to go or years later they would call and say okay, I'm ready to go. Yeah, it's so powerful to me to think about a TV show that supports adoptees in their healing at their pace. And that is what I think Long Lost Family has done. My name is Jen Utley. I've worked at Ancestry for 26 years. It makes me the most tenured employee here at Ancestry. I'm curious about your relationship with Long Lost Family. If you could describe how that came to be. You take the test and you get a list of DNA matches, right? But it's not, that just doesn't hand you your answer. There's a lot of tools that you need to use. And it's interesting, when we did the first season of the show, there were a million people in the database. Today, there are 25 million people in the database. What my team did for the show is we'd have to go and build trees for other people, for the matches to figure out how do they fit in here. We had cases in the, in the first years that would take 60 to 100 hours of work to figure it all out. 
And some cases are now solved in five minutes because of the features and how big the database is. And because we've gotten a lot better at it too. So many adoptees I know sit with the box unopened in their house for months and months and months and look at it before making that decision. And often I hand, when I hand uh, Dina kids to people, I have to say, okay, are you prepared? Like you're an adoptee at this point, we will probably be able to figure it out based on your DNA matches. So be ready because you need to be ready on your side. And also know when you're reaching out to the person on the other side, they're not in the same place you're in, right? You know, so many people in my community talk about those who have biological privilege, meaning they're just born into families where not only are they not adopted, but perhaps they have like an amateur genealogist in their family who loves to keep all of these records. And it is, um, for me, a moment of jealousy when I would come across families like that. And to now kind of meet you, someone behind the scenes and knowing that you really understand how precious this is. I feel like as adoptees, I feel like they have the right to know where they come from. Like, I think that they, the truth, the truth is now kind of accessible. And I think that they have the right to do it. Now, on, on the inverse of that, they don't have a, a right to a relationship with that person once they find it. That's something you have to cultivate. But I think knowing the truth and what I've seen with, with adoptees, just knowing the truth and knowing the answer can be a lot of the healing. There are holes in your heart that are harder to, to, to heal up, but that's one of the big ones that helps. There was a time when I'd come home every night and my husband would say, what was the miracle today? Like every day there was a new miracle of, you know, people we were reuniting with their loved ones or with their, their truth or their history or their stories. Like every day, it's just, it's, a blessing to be in this position and I hope that we can continue to make more of the happy stories and then find ways to heal the ones that are harder often long lost family was the last resort for, for many people because they had tried everything and they couldn't find the person that they deeply needed to find and so we knew that. We knew in some cases that it was their last resort. So we had to juggle that with making a television show, which is a really weird juggle. It's a strange juggle. And somehow we managed to do that. But we knew that for a lot of these folks that if we couldn't find this person that they never were going to find them because we had more resources than they ever would have. And so that's a heavy responsibility that we took on. That's kind of a call to action in my brain is helping producers, helping media understand the magnitude of their responsibility anytime they are utilizing a person's ex lived experience. And if they're doing it without us, shame on them that that is irresponsible and even harmful to us 
If there's another, any other takeaways that you would want to share specifically with the media, encouraging them to get it, get us right, what might it be? And then we'll close. I think there's more to be done, right? There's more stories to tell. I think anybody that listens to this should know that. And we're primed and ready to tell those stories and be a part of that. And I think just what you will always hear me say, if you're dealing with an adoptee, we have stories and it's not for anyone else to dictate how we navigate it. There's a whole community of folks that I'm looking at that believe that the stories need to be told. So thank you. And thank you for this time. Thank you both for being on the show. Thank you. you. Today's show is brought to you by The Cradle. The Cradle is a nonprofit licensed child welfare agency headquartered in Evanston, Illinois, which provides infant adoption services, counseling, and educational support. Since opening in 1923, The Cradle has built nurturing families and provided lifelong support to people whose lives have been touched by adoption. Their leadership team invited me to their offices, gave me a tour, I met the staff, and I was heartened to hear about their enthusiasm for my mission of centering adoptee voices. This episode was also sponsored by the Adoption Support Center, a licensed child placing agency in Indiana who I am proud to partner with because of the way they work towards making ethical adoptee-centered decisions. They have brought me on as a contractor to speak candidly with every single family that is considering adopting transracially. And this excites me to know that there are agencies like ASC who are willing to look at their past systemic mistakes and try something different. If it means more healing for those impacted by adoption and safer, healthier adoptions for those still to come. For continued education, resources, support, head to their website at adoptionsupportcenter.com to learn more. If you'd like to advertise on my show or host an event that includes a live taping of The Adoptee Next Door, please reach out to me at Angela at theadoptedlife.com or send me a note on my Instagram. My handle is at Angie Adoptee. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so you know when the next episode is released and go leave us a review. If you are an adoptee and you're interested in being part of the adoptee community, check out my nonprofit, the Adoptee Mentoring Society. We'd love to have you join an adoptee lounge. This episode was produced by Nick Ramsey and I. Nick is a Korean adoptee who has a passion for building adoptee communities. He also edited this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Adoptee Next Door.